Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of geological problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geology, I, with the help of our guest, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. More important than the argument of who is the best superhero, Batman or Superman, and regardless of whether you're Team Marvel or DC, as geoscientists, we are interested in a different kind of super, supercontinent. It is my understanding that these are not continents that can breathe underwater or read people's minds, but something else entirely. To clarify to us exactly what is a supercontinent and how important their roles throughout Earth's history is, I will be welcoming to the show today Dr. Erin Martin. Erin is a brilliant early career researcher whose research is focused on studying a few of these supercontinents in different periods of the geological time, with records preserved in the Americas, both North and South, Australia, China, and many other places. We will chat about causes and consequences of supercontinent formation, always keeping in mind that with great power comes great responsibility. Without further ado, let's get to today's episode. I am Dr. B. Hi, Erin. Welcome. And thank you for giving us a bit of your time today to try to answer some of these supercontinent questions. Hi, Dr. B. It's fantastic to be here. I'm really excited. So before we get into the discussion about these soups, <laughs> uh, we here at the Nice Chats like to kick things off with a quick game to break the ice, you know, Frozone style. Fantastic. If you didn't get that reference, Frozone is a hero from um, Incre The Incredibles. I may need some, uh, some help with the superhero references throughout, but uh, I'll, I'll try and not seem too, uh, too off the base. <laughs> okay, so this game is called Time for Questions. Okay. And just so we're clear, it is a total ripoff. Well, actually, it's more of a spin-off from an actual television game show called Um Actually from the Dropout.tv. I'm a big fan and if you like nerdy things like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon, then you should check it out too. But um, getting back to our game here today, it is inspired by something that happens quite often in uh, geoscience conferences. If you guys have ever been to a conference, you know what, uh, what I'm talking about. So oftentimes, there's a few minutes after each presentation where the public is allowed to ask questions to the presenter. And uh, more often than we care to admit, there's always someone that doesn't agree with your study or just doesn't like you and have nothing but bad things to say about your work. And that person will invariably shoot their hands up and say, um, this is more of a comment than a question. And then follow that by the most rude and negative way they can think of to point out to everyone just how wrong your observations are. This, this is the way that the game works. I'll read a statement 
and then there will be something wrong with this statement. It's your job to correct me by pointing out what's wrong. You must precede your answer by the phrase. This is more of a comment than a question. Otherwise, you won't get the point. Okay, okay. I think, I think I've got this. Also, um, to make things a bit more fun, you know, it would be better to have someone that you can play against. So, um, I've arranged for someone to join us. <laughs> Let's let them into the room now. I, I wonder who it is. I wonder who it is. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Victor. Hi, Erin. How's it going? Hi, Sylvia. Good. Really good. I'm so excited to be here. Hey, guys. I want you to welcome Dr. Sylvia Volante. She's a postdoc at Rube in Bochum. Germany and um, she's also a producer on this show and the reason why Erin reacted so positively uh, is because we actually all know each other from doing our graduate studies at the same time at Curtin University um, and then in addition to that I also know Sylvia from um, being married to her. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Sylvia is already familiar with the rules of the game and uh, whoever hits the buzzer first can answer. Okay, and if their answer is wrong or, you know, if they don't say this is more of a comment than a question, then the other person can have a go. Okay. Okay. Uh, are the rules clear? This is more of a question than a comment. What is my buzzer? Yeah, so I'll, so let me send you guys the buzzer. Oh, there's a buzzer. Amazing. <laughs> okay, guys, so are the rules clear? You guys ready? Yes. Ready. Uh, remember to say this is more of a comment than a question before you answer, otherwise you don't get the point, okay? Okay. Okay, okay let's start. Despite hosting the oldest known crustal material, the 4.39 billion year Hadean zircons, the Jack Hill rocks are estimated to be much younger at about 3.0 billion years. The oldest rocks ever found actually come from Greenland and are older than 4.0 billion years. Okay, Erin, you hit the buzzer. Uh, this is more of a comment than a question, but I believe the oldest rocks ever found actually come from uh, Canada. They are not from Greenland. <laughs> Point for Erin. The oldest known rock on Earth was dated to four, approximately 4.0 billion years and is part of the Acastad Nice of the Slave Craton in northwestern Canada. Erin leads the game, <laughs> one nothing. Next question, uh, actually, next statement. There are several different kinds of seismic waves and they all move in different ways. The two main types of waves are body waves and surface waves, also known as S wave, which is also the second wave you feel in an earthquake. Uh, okay, Erin buzzed it again, Sylvia. I mean, you have to be faster with the buzzer. So, Erin. <laughs> Um, this is more of a comment than a question, but I believe the waves are primary waves and secondary waves or surface waves and the second waves are S waves. Is that, is that right? Or do I have it wrong? <laughs> I don't know. That's right. So okay. S wave, S wave or secondary wave is actually a type of body wave together with P waves or primary waves. Surface waves are actually a, a lower of a lower frequency than body waves and therefore easily distinguished on a seismogram. Though they arrive after body waves, during an earthquake, 
It is surface waves that are almost entirely responsible for the damage and the destruction associated with these earthquakes. Next statement is Rubies, sapphires and emeralds are actually all the same mineral. They are all forms of corundum, with small traces of different elements, including iron, titanium and chromium. Oh, Sylvia buzzed in. I will try, but I have no idea. Um... This is more of a comment than a question. The different, uh, the, the different traces of elements mm -hmm. um, are, I think, uh, including uh, magnesium as well. Uh, okay, so that's your answer, yeah. right? That uh, magnesium is missing from the list. Yeah, probably. Okay, so that's actually not what we're going for here. Erin, uh, do you wanna, do you wanna venture a guess? I'm really. I'm really, really not sure if I'm kind of like trying to figure it out, which I'm very bad at element chemistry. It's definitely not my thing. Um, but I feel like iron could potentially give either a red color or in titanium. I'm not sure what color that would give, but chromium could be green. So I think maybe titanium might be wrong, but I'm not sure what it would give sapphires a blue color. I could be way off, but that's what I'm thinking. And I have no idea what it would be, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Right. Anyway, um, before I give you guys the answer, even if Erin was correct, she would not have had oh, no. the point because she forgot to say, you know, our little mandatory phrase, which is this is more of a question of a comment than a question. However, she was not correct. And the correct answer that I'm looking for here is that Although rubies and sapphires are <gasps> both forms of corundum. Emerald's beryl. Oh my god. Emerald <laughs> is beryl. There you go. Oh god, of course. Jeez. Wow. There wow. you go. And its color. So emerald oh, is a type of beryl and its color is due to small amounts of chromium or vanadium. Oh, wow. That's it. Can we, uh, <laughs> can we uh, cut that? Yeah, that is yeah. Can we cut this? <laughs> can we cut these answers? <laughs> All right, guys, so next statement is blue schist fascis generally is considered to form under pressures higher than 0.6 kilobar and at temperatures of between 200 and 500 degrees. Sylvia, you hit the buzzer. So uh, this is more a comment than a question. I think that uh, the problem with this statement about the condition of the blue schist fascis is um, the pressure conditions. <laughs> because, I mean, 0.6 kilobar is, dude. Yeah, that's it. I'll give you the point. Blue schist fascis generally is considered to form under pressures higher than 0.6 GPA. That's it. So we have Erin with two points and then Sylvia with one point. So this one goes for Erin. <laughs> <laughs> well. I can't believe neither of them got that emerald one. But to be fair, I did put all of those elements in the statement to confuse them and distract from the real problem, so all in good fun. If you noticed something else that was wrong and that we didn't catch, let me know. You can message me and follow me on Twitter at GeoDrB. That is G-E-O-D-R-B. Now back to the show. So Erin, if it's okay with you, I'll ask Sylvia to stick around and if she can think of something interesting or any interesting questions, she can just jump in at any moment. Absolutely. Sounds great. Okay. So let's start with the basics then. 
First of all, what is a supercontinent? Okay, so that is absolutely the basics, but you would be potentially surprised to know that people even still argue about just the definition of a supercontinent. So in general terms, a supercontinent is a landmass on the planet that is made up of most of Earth's continents or cratons, which are kind of the building blocks of continents. Um, more specifically, though, uh, there have been some researchers who argue that for it to be called a supercontinent officially, it needs to be uh, made up of more than 75% of the Earth's landmass. So more than 75% of all of the continents on Earth need to come together in order for it to be strictly called a supercontinent. Otherwise, we call it something else, sometimes a supercraton, or sometimes we just don't even give it a name. Um, but there's been kind of arguments more recently in the science that this might be a little bit of a, an ambiguous definition. So uh, perhaps we should use the influence of the land mass on Earth systems and how, how we can see that it's affected the Earth. So, for example, um, most people have probably heard of Gondwana, which by the 75% rule isn't actually a supercontinent, but it's had a quite an important imprint on Earth systems, whether they be um, the geochemical record or the climate or diversification of species. So a lot of people argue that Gondwana or something very similar to Gondwana called Pinocha is actually a supercontinent. Very interesting. And um, another thing that I wanted to ask you is how many supercontinents do we know of throughout Earth's history? And uh, when were they formed? Uh, I need to pick up my geological time scale to understand this one. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Gonna get confused with all the different eras and eons. Absolutely. Well, I'll try. I'll, I'll kind of mention eons a little bit, but I'll try and give it to you in kind of millions or billions of years so that we could all kind of understand when things were happening. Um, as is the case with all things in the geological record, the further we go back in time, the fewer rocks there are, and so the harder it is to really know what was happening. So I'll start kind of at the beginning, at the most recent supercontinent, and we'll work our way back. So the most recent supercontinent is Pangaea, uh, and it existed between about 330 and 175 million years ago, which is relatively recent in terms of geological history. So before that uh, was the supercontinent that I just mentioned, or the argued supercontinent that I just mentioned, Gondwana, which existed from about 550 million years ago. Um, Gondwana actually collided with North America and Europe to become Pangaea. So effectively, Gondwana didn't actually break up until about 175 million years ago with Pangaea breakup. Um, Pinocha then is Gondwana, which is South America, Africa, Australia, Antarctica and India and fragments of Asia as well. Um, so Pinocha is that combination of Gondwana with North America, but it's really heavily debated. There was an ocean that opened between North America and Gondwana, and the timing of that ocean opening really kind of di dictates whether or not there was 75% of land mass within this kind of supercontinent or potentially supercraton. So Pinocha existed potentially between about 630 million and 570 million years ago. So that was in the Neoproterozoic, that was a pretty important time 
Um, we had a snowball earth event then, so there was a global glaciation, or there's argued to be gl glaciers kind of extending from the Antarctic ice caps all the way to, or the polar ice caps all the way to the equator. Um, and we also immediately after that in the Ediacaran and the Cambrian had a rapid diversification of species. So a lot of stuff was happening on Earth around the time of Gondwana and Pinocchio. Before that, at about a billion years ago, so between 1100 million and 750 million years ago, we had a supercontinent called Rodinia. And it's quite controversial, not, not in its existence, but its configuration. So it was first proposed in the early 90s. And over the last 30 years, there's been loads of different reconstructions proposed for that, re for that uh, supercontinent. Um, that's due to a lot of reasons, but mainly because we don't have lots and lots of paleomagnetic data, which is something I'll talk about probably a bit later, to really, really solidly constrain that supercontinent, or it can be interpreted in a few different ways. So before that, we have a supercontinent that I know that Sylvia is very familiar with, um, and that is a supercontinent called Nuna. Um, other people like to call it Columbia, um, although there has been work recently to suggest that Nuna and Columbia might actually be separate things with Nuna preceding Columbia. But, you know, that's kind of a little bit more detail than we'll probably go into today. So Nuna or Columbia was around between about 1,800 million, million and 1,350 million years ago. Um, throughout the, the Mesoproterozoic, so a lot of people kind of talk about that period in Earth history as the boring billion where not a lot happened. So we did have a supercontinent, but we don't have a, a whole lot of uh, mineral deposits. We've got a pretty stable atmosphere. Not a whole lot of super interesting stuff was going on um, for, for Nuna or Rodinia time, actually, but I really like those two supercontinents. They're kind of my favourites, I'd say. So before that, we have what I would argue as probably the earliest um, supercontinent that people probably generally agree that, yeah, we can say it was a supercontinent. So that was Kenoland. Um, sometimes it's referred to as Superior Sclavia, uh, which is a combination of two supercratons. And it's argued to have existed between about 2,700 and 2,100 million years ago. So that's at the end of the Archean and the start of the Paleoproterozoic. Um, again, this is a, another really, really important time in Earth history. Uh, we again had global glaciations. It's also at the same time that we see this massive increase in oxygenation of the atmosphere, um, which was fed through uh, potentially uh, oxygenic photosynthesis. Um, so that was, yeah, Kennel Land saw some really interesting stuff in Earth history. Before that, uh, there's two other earlier supercontinents throughout the Archean, um, which are pretty debated. I don't know that you could say that they're really supercontinents, maybe supercratons, um, and they're certainly beyond kind of what I'm familiar with, but there is evidence to correlate some cratons together. So there was Ur, which is just U-R, uh, at about 3.1 billion years ago. So this is getting back towards kind of early days in Earth history. We're still in the Archean, but Earth formation was only about 4.6 billion years ago. So it's, it's, a, it's getting back there. And then before that, we have Valbara, which was argued between 3,600 and lasted until 2,800. But as I said previously, getting that far back in Earth history 
the geological record becomes much more fragmented and it's really, really difficult to say with a lot of certainty that we had supercontinents way back then. Right. And um, do you think that these, you know, early records of possible supercontinents, do they have any implications for, say, the onset of plate tectonics on Earth and all of these early Earth uh, questions that we ask ourselves? I think so. I think for sure. So uh, Kennel Land that I was speaking about just before um, and its association with like the Great Oxygenation, oxygenation Event and um, global glaciations, it kind of also correlates with one of the times throughout Earth history where people think we might have started to see plate tectonics that resemble plate tectonics on Earth now. So again, this is still really, really debated. When did plate tectonics start? And the supercontinent cycle and supercontinent formation is really intimately linked with plate tectonics. So they, you know, plate tectonics drive continental movements and therefore supercontinent formation and breakup. So a lot of researchers think that probably by about two and a half million years ago, two and a half million years ago, two and a half billion years ago on Earth, we had plate tectonics. And that's when we see a lot of um, collisions forming um, big cratons that exist today. So, for example, a lot of North America was formed during this time period um, and some of Baltica, which is uh, northern Europe as well occurred during this time period. So it's also kind of the start of what's referred to potentially, um, potentially the start of what's referred to as the supercontinent cycle, where we started to see some regularity in supercontinent formation. Um, and that wouldn't be necessary. I don't think that would be expected if we didn't have um, active plate tectonics on Earth. It would be potentially a lot more random. So, yeah, it's it's very, very yeah. much tied to, to mm -hmm. plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the discussion about the, you know, the beginning of plate tectonics and whether or not it existed uh, since the beginning or, you know, near the, the beginning of the formation of the Earth is, uh, is definitely a, uh, an area that still needs to be heavily explored. And it's, um, it's a very interesting subject. And um, if you haven't yet, I would suggest and recommend to all of our listeners to go back and listen to the interview that I did with Peter Kaywood because uh, we discussed this, uh, this very issue uh, on this previous episode. So, Erin, um, from all of these um, supercontinents that you mentioned, if you had to create a Hall of Fame of supercontinents, which ones would be inducted? Wait, I have an intervention. First of okay. all, mm -hmm. what would be the criteria to enter the Hall of Fame? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. That's a good point, Sylvia. Yeah. So, okay. So, let me reformulate my question, Ari. Mm -hmm. So, what would be the criteria for eligibility? So, let's say size, duration, consequences to, you know, the Earth, history, something like that. Um, and based on these uh, criteria, which ones would be inducted? Um, you can do, like, maybe a top three or something. Okay. I don't know. Whatever you okay. want. Okay. Cool. So I think that my, my criteria, um, I'm of the opinion that when it comes to supercontinents, size doesn't matter. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to cross that off the list as a criteria, Um, as well as how long it was around for. Um, The more we look into supercontinents and the more precise our methods of actually dating rocks become, the more and more we see that supercontinent assembly and breakup often occurs at the same time. So these supercontinents can be really fleeting and parts of them will assemble before other parts. So even defining what the whole supercontinent is and how long it was around for is kind of tricky. So I'm much more interested in what the imprint of the supercontinent was on the earth um, and on the on the mantle as well. So there's a lot of discussion and modelling that suggests that the supercontinent cycle and the regular uh, assembly of supercontinents is linked to convection in the mantle. Um, and I, so I think that if we can see the effect of a supercontinent on mantle convection, then we can probably call it a supercontinent. Um, and based on those criteria, my MVP supercontinent hall of fame supercontinents would probably be uh, Nuna, Rodinia. Can I go four? Yeah, sure. Pretty much all of them. <laughs> Nuna, Rodinia, uh, Gondwana, and also Pangaea. Because I mean, you have to include Pangaea because it's it's the OG supercontinent. It's funny that Gondwana made the list, <laughs> but you know, so many listeners are going to be screaming at their phones right highly now because uh, they don't think Gondwana is actually a supercontinent. But I mean, you can't deny that it has a big impact on Earth's history. So we'll we'll give it a pass. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) So, um, right. So these supercontinents, they formed in uh, the geological past, but that's obviously no longer the case because currently we have a bunch of smaller continents uh, that are separated and we need to travel by boat, plane, you know, maybe the Snowpiercer. That's another (laughs) reference that you might not have gotten. (laughs) It's a movie with um, Chris Evans. Amazing. Um, So we need to use all of these different modes of transportation to get from one continent to the other. Um, How did we go from a centralized landmass to the configuration that we have today? Yeah. So as I said before, supercontinents and plate tectonics are intimately linked. And it's through plate tectonic processes that we go from Pangaea about 200 million years ago to the configuration of the Earth that we see today. So plate tectonics move or plates move pretty slowly about the rate that your fingernails grow, about five millimetres a year. But over millions and millions of years, that ends up to be a lot of movement. So over the last 100 million years or so, we've seen, well, we haven't seen, we weren't here, but (laughs) through the geological record, we've seen the opening of the Atlantic Ocean. So Africa and South America have separated. And we've also seen kind of this movement of um, fragments of Gondwana north to make Eurasia. So I think most people would probably familiar with probably be familiar with um, how the Himalayas formed. So India travelled northward across the Tethys Ocean, and about fifty million years ago, give or take, uh, it collided with the Asian landmass, and we formed the Himalayas. But prior to India moving forward and colliding, lots of cratons that now make up Eurasia made that same journey. They traveled northward, collided into initially kind of Siberia and Baltica, which is Europe, um, and they created this collage of Asia. And that's been happening for about 
400 million years, so almost older than Pangaea, which I think is another really good example that we see kind of supercontinents forming and breaking up simultaneously. It's very, it's not a static mm-hmm. process. It's really dynamic and complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you're mentioning, um, you know, reconfiguration of the continent and, you know, pieces moving. So the way I see it, you know, if the continent is broken up into pieces and then is affected by geological processes like deformation, metamorphism, erosion, then, you know, it is a bit of a puzzle to put the pieces back together. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, is that the reason why you particularly enjoy supercontinents? Because you're a puzzle head. <laughs> I do love puzzles. As you know, um, throughout uh, this coronavirus lockdown that we've had, um, I did many puzzles. I really, really enjoyed them. And I think most geologists, honestly, are problem solvers and puzzlers. They like to collect clues to solve problems. So, yeah, I really, really like it. Um, I, I think I think that's what attracts me to it you get some information from one place and you try and see how that relates to information from another place on the planet at the same time and what that might mean for for where all the continents were back through time it's really really cool i like the spatial aspect of it as well Uh, but usually in puzzles, what you do is that you match the size and the shape of the pieces uh, as well as the print in the surface. And your goal is try to get the picture that comes in the lid of the box. Sure. But I imagine that, you know, with earth and especially with this process of, you know, recycling and destruction of the crust, it is a much different and tougher task. Um, how do geoscientists put together the puzzle of what earth looked like? in past lives yeah i i think methodically is the important thing so if i guess if you were to get a puzzle in a bag that didn't have a picture of on the top the way that i do a puzzle is first i find the corners and then i find the edges and then you work from there so even if you don't have a picture of what it looks like you can still kind of start um with some basic rules to figure out how to figure out what it might look like um, and there's some kind of basic rules similarly that have been used through the past to reconstruct supercontinents. Um, so probably one of the earliest was uh, looking at the shapes of the continents. So Alfred Wagner, I should say, um, noticed, noticed that the shape of South America and Africa kind of looked like puzzle pieces and like they could be joined back together. Um, and that was one of the things that helped him develop his theory of continental drift in the early 1900s. So that's kind of something that's used. But further back in time, as you start to kind of deform the margins of the plates, it's like breaking off all the edges of the puzzle pieces. You've got literally no idea how they fit back together physically anymore or geometrically. Um, So something else that was used and is mainly used for the more recent supercontinents are fossil assemblages. So throughout Gondwana, we see that in South America, sorry, in uh, Africa, Southern Africa particularly, and Australia and into South America, there are Gondwanan faunas that were able to move across the land because it was all joined together. 
Um, mm-hmm. And there, they, these plant species particularly didn't have to kind of cross oceans to germinate on, on land. So this is a way that we can see that things were previously together. Of course, we've only had um, species on land for, you know, the past 500 million years-ish. Um, so going back into deep time, we need to look at different methods. Um, for Rodinia, the supercontinent, from about a billion years ago, one of the first ways it was identified was by um, correlating orogenic belts, which are mountain belts that all formed at about the same time. So at around a billion years ago, there's this big orogenic event, uh, which is in North America called the Grenville origin. Um, it's often generally referred to that in a lot of different terrains, although that's not specifically where that uh, type origin is. Um, and that or that mountain building event was recognised all along the east coast of North America, in Scandinavia, uh, in the Amazon Craton, which is mainly in um, Brazil, but kind of heads over into kind of Bolivia there. Also through Central Australia, in um, South Africa, and in Antarctica as well. Um, and through recognition of that uh, big mountain belting event, all of the same age, it was interpreted that they reflect all of, that reflected all of those continents coming together at that time. Mm-hmm. So that's still used really regularly. Um, we use a number of different proxies these days to recognise orogenic events. So we can look at um, metamorphism, which Sylvia, you can probably <laughs> speak to much more than I can, being a metamorphic petrologist. My jam. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we use, yeah, so metamorphism and, and defamation. Uh, we look at uh, igneous events, so um, identifying uh, arc magmatism or magmatism relating potentially to collision um, to correlate origins um, through time. We can also look at basins as well um, and look at the sedimentary record through those. Um, a lot of something that's also used really regularly, particularly to identify um correlation between continental blocks just before supercontinent breakup is looking at the large igneous province record. So lips or large igneous provinces are these major, major eruptive events, usually associated with kind of supercontinent breakup and plume magmatism. And we kind of use those as a barcode to link continents together. So that's done really, really frequently. Frequently. Um, and one of the main um, methods that's used to understand where continents were back through time and kind of link them to one another uh, is paleomagnetism. When a rock with magnetic minerals in it crystallises for the first time, those magnetic minerals will point north-south with the Earth's magnetic field. And then as the continent moves around through time, that north-south direction won't face north-south anymore because they were crystallised in place. But if we can get a measurement of that north-south orientation preserved in that rock and what age it was, we can kind of move that continent back so that it faces north-south again. Um, And we use that to figure out where these continents were um, in terms of latitude back through time. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning to have a future episode where we actually discuss a little bit uh, more about uh, paleomagnetism and how it's used, uh, not only in supercontinents, but, you know, other applications as well. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so, you know, we talked before about how, uh, you know, the distribution of 
the fossils is something that you can use to um, argue that you know certain continents were linked it at some point in history and we also talked about how um, the configuration that we have today um, in on earth uh, kind of shapes how mankind evolved and uh, and you know how the earth interacts with itself uh, in many forms yeah. uh, so my question to you is how different do you think that our civilization would be if instead of separate continents we all lived in one big supercontinent for example that is a really interesting question really interesting um i think it would be really different for us in terms of climate and food supply mainly so depending on how recently our supercontinent that we all lived on had assembled it could mean that it's a really really cold planet so when a supercontinent assembles you make lots and lots of mountain belts which means that you erode and weather lots and lots of rock and what that does is it pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and makes it really really cold so it could depending on like how our civilization lived in relative to the timing of the supercontinent assembling it could either be really cold or if the supercontinent was starting to break up it might be a lot warmer because there's less silicate weathering i think food supply would be interesting because we know that we get a lot of diversity of species along coastlines and when you put mm -hmm. all of the continents together you have fewer coastlines because you've kind of just got one big outline of the supercontinent so there's kind of less unique habitat so we might not see quite as much diversity in species um, we'd also be limited to um, the latitude that the supercontinent assembled for our agricultural lands so we know that depending on kind of what latitude we're in uh, we can be in kind of a temperate zone where we get lots of rainfall and and we've got good agricultural lands or if we're kind of in the wrong latitude and we're getting the down coming limb of the Hadley circulation. And so there's lots of high pressure zones and descending cool, dry air. We don't get a lot of rainfall. And so we get big deserts like is the case in the Sahara. So if we think about mm -hmm. the Sahara desert, I mean, it crosses Africa and we see um, similar latitudes in Asia. But if we were in a supercontinent where the majority of the continents span that latitude, we could be in a lot of trouble for agricultural land so it might be difficult to sustain a population also sea level would be potentially different as well so we could have a water world situation on our hands <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a good reference <laughs> i imagine that you know we might not be around for this but is there a supercontinent in sight for earth's future uh yeah there's actually been a few different supercontinents proposed for earth's future so Probably the most famous supercontinent uh, is called Amasia. So as I kind of described previously, lots of the continental fragments have moved north over the last kind of 400 million years. And for Australia, that's still the case. We're still moving north and we're crashing into Indonesia and eventually we'll collide with Asia. And the supercontinent Amasia is kind of basically evaluating what happens if all of those continents move north and then the Arctic Ocean closes. So Amasia comes from America and Asia. 
Um, and that's predicted to not happen until about 250 million years in the future. So, no, it's quite unlikely that we'll see it. But there's also been supercontinents proposed for if there's some major change in tectonic movement and instead of closing the Arctic Ocean, we close, for example, the Atlantic Ocean. And if we close the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the supercontinent has been named Ultima Pangaea. Or if we close the Pacific Ocean, that supercontinent has been called Novo Pangaea. Very interesting. next segment uh, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode these are questions which are a little bit more personal and they are designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener uh, and it also allows us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields so Erin my first question to you is how did you first decide to become a geologist um, so my decision to become a geologist was actually kind of accidental. Um, I went to uni doing environmental science because I wanted to get uh, into the mining industry and I was doing an earth science major and as part of that I took some geology courses and was immediately hooked. So I changed over to a Bachelor of Science and then took honours and then took PhD um, and yeah, I've, I've loved it since then. Um, I was always really into building like those plasticine volcanoes with like vinegar and bicarb soda when I was a little kid though. So I think I, uh, down, down low, low key, I've always wanted to be a geologist. I just didn't know it. Um, Sylvia, how did you first decide to become a geologist? I think that goes back to high school actually. Uh, I took a course that was, uh, yeah, just earth... Uh, earth science and the teacher had a very cool um, rock and mineral collection so we had these um, lab classes where we looked at minerals and rocks and uh, I was fascinated by those um, so that really fascinated me but that was just um, after um, my gap year I would call it like that that I've been living in London and I started to um, read a bit more about uh, these, like, uh, you know, Earth Sciences magazines. Uh, and that really uh, I got hooked as well and, um, and kind of, like, um, decided to uh, get into the geoscience uh, bachelor course as soon as I was going to come back to Italy. Yeah. Erin, my next question to you is... What are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? So you are a part of the uh, Pulse of the Earth group, uh, which includes myself and is led by Peter Kaywood that was featured in our uh, previous episode. So what are you actually studying right now? Uh, so I am kind of looking at how we can utilize um, data that's already existing kind of that was part of my idea for the postdoc already but it's become super handy now that COVID's happened and traveling is so much more difficult so there's so so much uh, geochemical especially data that's published all the time 
we have this really great library of information, but it's kind of hard to collect. It takes a long time. It's really fiddly. So I'm looking at uh, ways to quickly collect the data. So I'm learning how to code. Uh, I'm learning about machine learning and I'm trying to get lots and lots of different data sets um, to look at different geochemical proxies. Um, and specifically, I'm interested in uh, major events and clusters of major events in Earth history. So um, earlier I described how in uh, the Paleoproterozoic, during potentially Kennelland's existence, we saw um, arguably the onset of plate tectonics. Uh, we saw this global glaciation and we saw a rapid increase in atmospheric oxygen. Uh, and we see a similar kind of set of events in the Neoproterozoic. So about 800 million years ago, we are just after the supercontinent Rodinia, we have a snowball earth event uh, and we also have a Neoproterozoic uh, oxygenation event. So the snowball earth is a little bit younger. Um, but what I want to do is collect lots and lots of different proxies and see how each of those records these events um, and what the time differences are and what that might say potentially about cause and effect maybe. It might say nothing. But I'm also really interested in how that links back to supercontinent cycles and then also maybe mantle dynamics. So that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that... Um... There is a lot of data out there and there is definitely a chance that a lot of it is um, underutilized or that you can just, you know, look through a different window um, to this data and extract a lot of interesting information. Um, so, Sylvia, um, what are the specifics of the research that you are conducting right now? Um, so, uh, with the starting of this uh, postdoc, uh, here at uh, the Hope Universität, my research really is trying to understand how Archean crust formed the processes that involved um, the formation of uh, the early crust and, and the cratons that we see uh, now uh, today um, and of Archean age, which are mainly composed by these uh, TTG suites, which are the transgematic, tonalitic, and granodiuretic suites. So um, the processes that involve the formation of these TTG suites that are believed to form from partial melting of uh, hydrous metabasalts and is a very hot topic. So I'm very excited to kind of like start this new uh, journey because I, I never went as back as Archean rocks in my, um, for my research. So I'm very excited and looking forward to it. So Erin, our final question is, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geologing? Uh, so I think that we've already covered that I have a, a weird obsession with doing puzzles. I really like it. <laughs> um, I think my record during lockdown was completing a thousand piece puzzle in 48 hours. So I was pretty happy with that. <laughs> Got weird for a while, guys. Um, so aside from that, I really, really love cooking and eating, which is obviously the best part about cooking. Um, I like to run. And as is the case with many geologists, I enjoy to have a beer. Um, Sylvia, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geologing, as if I didn't know? Yeah, <laughs> well, um, spending time with my husband. <laughs> I love CrossFit. I love doing CrossFit. So that's one of my big passion. Uh, but I also love um, wine and cheese and uh, languages. I love languages as well. 
Um, you know, I think that a lot of people don't really associate CrossFit and geology and have a really hard time um, believing that me and Sylvia are like, you know, as passionate about CrossFit as we are about geology. But you know what? They share their love for acronyms. So, you know, you have your MRAP, but you have also your RES and your, <laughs> your LIPS. You know, your ICPMSs. Your EMOMs in CrossFit. And then, you know. <laughs> All right, Erin, I would like to thank you so much for um, clarifying some of these concepts involving Supercontinent. Thank you so much for participating of this little podcast. Uh, next time I have some free time. I might actually read one of your papers instead of a Spider-Man comic. So <laughs> you got me hooked. Uh, I appreciate that. That's uh, it's been really, really fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And I also like to thank uh, Sylvia for helping with um, the Nice Chats podcast as a whole, but also um, for her participation in this episode, especially with the game. Yeah, thank you for having me. Although I lost, but I mean, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> You listener can stay up to date with the work that both Ari and Sylvia are putting out there by following them on Twitter at IsaTweets and at Sylvia underscore Volante. And I'll put the handles in the episode's notes to make things easier. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologists. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologists.com or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review. Hey guys, I hope to see you next time. And if you're planning to visit the Andes, just remember, it can get a bit chilly. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yes.